0: This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Yes, Radio Parallax is back on the air. We appreciate the word we get from you, the listening public, that um, you're glad to hear us. Such feedback is most gratifying. On today's program, at least in the second part of today's program, we're going to take a look at yours truly's travel adventure in Morocco. Last month, there was some thought to bringing on travel agent Stan Godwin to talk about the trip since he uh, helped arrange it for me. And as we mentioned this program before many times in the past, uh, we think that using a travel agent can be a very useful thing. It has certainly been so for me, including this trip to what turned out to be country for me number 100. Now, I know that there are some of you out there that say that I can't count the United States of America. Like me. So I guess to placate this subset of numbskulls, I'm going to have to go out and do another country so that nobody can take away 100. Don't make me go to the Bahamas, Mr. McMillan. Yes, I know it's a real country. It's located like 45 minutes right off of Miami if you go to Bimini. I'm not, I'm not trying to, to, to stack up a number. It just I enjoy travel, and, and over the years, the, the numbers have piled up, and I've hit the century mark. Not yet. <laughs> so we're going to do that in our second segment today. We we're hoping also, perhaps, uh, to bring on my traveling companions, Chico's own Kevin Valentino, who is also my nephew, and a high school buddy from a Washington High School in the Bay Area, Michael McGrath, who was also a very good traveling companion. We, as a trio, did very well, I think. And I'll take a run at telling you about it in segment two, and then probably do some follow-up in, in the weeks to come. I know Stan's got a lot of questions about how things went, and so he's going to have to listen to today's broadcast and then probably phone in next week with his follow-up questions which could be kind of fun. Now, preparing for today's show, I have been pawing through piles of old paperwork that was amassed sometimes up to 15, 16 years ago for broadcast purposes. Some of it we used, some of it we did not use. I have been uh, highly entertained by reading some of this stuff we set aside a decade and a half ago, and I think that in this first segment today, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to run through some of it. Oldies but goodies. Perhaps you remember from listening 15 years ago when we aired them the first time, but perhaps not. Memory does fade. For example, not two days ago, Mr. McMillan reminded me that I knew the answer to the show that replaced, unfortunately, on CBS, The Smothers Brothers. However, I drew a complete blank on remembering what that show was. He reminded me, to my horror, that it was, in fact, the long, long long-running show known as Hee Haw. I think probably the less said about that, the better. But the point is, memory does fade. I have been pleased to note that people have forgotten the repertoire of jokes I like to throw at them. So after a few years, when I dredge them up again, it's as if they'd heard it for the first time. And you know, when it's a good joke, you really got to enjoy recycling it. And one thing that used to be a regular um, feature on this program was a joke of the day and various humorous uh, interludes we would, we would throw at you. Um, we're going to do some of that today. And by guy, don't you think it's high time? Now, also in reviewing some of the stacks of material that I set aside, uh, I came across some items that I thought, wow, that, that's a strange story. Frankly, we like strange stories here at Radio Parallax. The one in question was that the U.S. Postal Service had to sheepishly admit five years ago that the Statue of Liberty on one of their commemorative stamps was not, in fact, the Ellis Island version of the Statue of Liberty gifted to us by the Republic of France, but in fact, its imitation, which can be found in Las Vegas, Nevada. I came across that little blurb and thought, well, there's not much you can do with that, so I crumbled it up and tossed it in the wastebasket. However... On the way to working out, not one hour later, I heard on NPR that the sculptor, the man who concocted the version of the Statue of Liberty currently found in Vegas, sued the government, and he won. Now, when I say the government, what I mean, of course, is the taxpayer, you and I. Now, I I can see that he probably has some rights to his creation, which the post office inadvertently used on their stamp. I mean, some compensation seems in order, I I would agree, but do you think three million dollars is fair? He made a copy of something, and somebody made a copy of his copy. He sues. And gets three million dollars. He should have been sued for making the copy of the Statue of Liberty. Well, I'm with you on that one. You know, that makes us so angry, we need a little musical interlude to calm down. You know that might not have been the ideal musical interlude. Try again. Yes, it was by the way the 4th of July yesterday. We hope you um went out and celebrated. Yes. Someone who's contributed to the show in the past, I would note, was a bit on the warpath last week, noting correctly that fireworks are illegal within the jurisdiction of San Jose, California. She proposed people go out and videotape people using illegal fireworks and report them. No word yet on whether she also was recommending we report people who are possibly illegal aliens and or, of course, communists. Anyway, I was a bit taken aback by this aggressive stance against illegal fireworks. But as we record at this moment, it's actually nearing sunset on the 4th. Yes, it's true. We sometimes record the program before broadcasting it. Yeah, I know. It's our dirty secret. But with some confidence, I would note that when sunset... Arrives in the next hour or so, we're going to hear a war zone outside as people set off firecrackers, cherry bombs, and various M80s to M100s. This gives Radio Parallax the opportunity to take the microphone outside and actually record something if there's something to be recorded. We shall see. Neither will we film them nor report them. Now, another item I came across, which unfortunately I refiled, was an item about a guy who invented. Rock's Fuzz Tone. This came out of the archives. I thought this was unusual because the engineer who accidentally invented Rock's Fuzz Tone was reported in the week's obituary column for the June 15th issue. Clearly, this means that there's more than one inventor, or more than one father of Rock's Fuzz Tone. But let us quote from um, what the week had to say about audio engineer Glenn Snotty. He was apparently recording a Nashville session with country singer Marty Robbins in 1961 when something went very wrong. 90 seconds into the song, the bass guitar band producing a fuzzy, abrasive sound instead of a clean tone, the result of a blown transformer in the mixing console. Snotty wanted to re-record, but the musicians loved the distortion, which became an in-demand effect. When the console finally died, Snotty took apart its faulty transformer and built a foot operated pedal to duplicate the sound. Gibson bought the rights to what became the Maestro Fuzz Tone, and its distinctive buzz went mainstream when Keith Richards used the pedal on the Rolling Stones' 1965 hit, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Yes, Snotty said when Keith Richards picked it up, music history was changed forever. Glenn Snotty became an engineer after serving as an Army radio technician in the Pacific during World War II. According to the Washington Post, he moved to Nashville in the late 1940s and engineered grand old Opry shows for radio and TV. Snotty later became chief engineer at the Quonset Hut Studio, where he mixed Johnny Cash's 1963 hit, Ring of Fire. Now we got We got to sample that. Love is a burning thing, and it makes a fiery ring. Bound by wild desire, I fell into a ring of fire. He also apparently has a footnote role in... Um in country music history, because he evidently hired an aspiring songwriter to be a janitor. His name was Chris Christofferson. And no, Radio Parallax has no information on how Chris Christofferson performed as a janitor. In 1967, Glenn Snoddy opened Woodland Sound Studio in East Nashville. For the New York Times, it became one of the city's premier recording studios, producing hits including the nitty-gritty Dirt Band's Grammy-winning album Will the Circle Be Broken in 1979. But he remained most famous for the fuzz tone. Said Peter Cooper of the Country Music Hall of Fame, it was such a wild and unrestrained sound created by this quiet, gentle, and scholarly fellow. Radio Parallax, although I hate to admit this, does not have a team of comedy writers working for it. That is, we hope, contrary to popular belief. But late-night TV hosts do, and they do a monologue. Therefore, while we couldn't resist strip-mining some of the finest material that has been put before the public by the likes of David Letterman, Conan O'Brien, Jimmy Kimmel, Jay Leno, etc. So let's, let's just grab a few of those and run with them, shall we? Said Craig Ferguson back when he had a show, Alcohol was illegal in this country from 1919 to 1933. So, for 14 long years, not a single person did karaoke. Conan O'Brien noted that a pizza parlor has been closed after police found more than $1 million in marijuana there. Said Conan, police became suspicious when they promised delivery in 30 days or less. (laughs) Said Jay Leno, and I remember when this happened. In an interview in GQ magazine, John Edwards' mistress said she slept with him on the first date. She wasn't his mistress. She was just playing that role, said Jay. Well, apparently the audition went so well, she got the job. Jimmy Kimmel noted in wake of the disaster out in the Gulf with the BP platform blowing up that uh, BP's company newsletter has an article that says most Gulf residents aren't upset with BP because their cleanup crews have boosted the local economy. Said Jimmy, BP taking credit for boosting the economy in the Gulf is like Al-Qaeda taking credit for creating jobs in airport security. In the wake of the book being published by Dick Cheney, David Letterman weighed in. He said Dick Cheney says in his book that he would do it all over again. He feels so strongly that he said he would still invade the wrong country. And in the wake of some Soviet spies, some, some... some sleepers agents that had been in place apparently in America for quite some time. This is a minor headline some years back. Letterman said the Russian spies tried to blend in; they were acting like Americans. As a matter of fact, for two weeks they were pretending they loved soccer. You know, you actually discovered that part of the problem with soccer—well, w- one of the m- multiple problems with soccer—is that the field is 110 to 120 yards long. And seventy to eighty yards wide. If you do the math, you'll find that's a much larger area of playing surface, which I think accounts for the fact that nobody can score in the damn thing. Anyway, I know a lot of you are excited about the World Cup, so we're going to stop bagging on soccer. Instead, we're going to go to the Onion, which is also a rich source of humor over the years. Because, well, their their headlines are just you know works of art sometimes, like this one: Nigeria elects black president. Or this one, Report, Mankind's Knowledge of TV Trivia Doubling Every Three Years. Or my personal favorite headline from The Onion, Corpse Reanimation Technology Still Ten Years Off, Say MIT Mad Scientists. It's alive! Alright, I'm not sure this, is, this comes from David Letterman. Perhaps it does. It's a top ten list. In this case, top ten signs, you're not going to win an academy award number 10 was you're up against king kong for best giant monkey number six is good you're guy number five in the paris hilton sex tape number four your acting has been compared to steven seagal number three your last screen credit was the coveted role of quote man who gets kicked in the nuts unquote And my personal favorite, in this case, number one, which was you spent months learning to become a gay cowboy, but you're not an actor. And uh, speaking of gays, cowboy or otherwise, we did um, enjoy the copy we obtained surreptitiously for broadcast of The Homosexual Agenda. You've heard about it. Fortunately for us, we were able to secure a copy of it. So ladies and gentlemen, here it is, The Homosexual Agenda. 7 a.m., gym. 7.45, massage. 8 a.m., breakfast. Skim milk, oatmeal and egg whites with a dash of paprika, sliced kiwi, and a honeydew melon. 9 a.m., manicure. 10 a.m., clothes shopping. 12 p.m., brunch. Lightly glazed salmon, asparagus, spinach salad with a vinaigrette dressing. 1.30 p.m., assume complete control of U.S. federal, state, and local government agencies. 2 p.m., undermine all healthy marriages. 2.20 p.m., replace all school counselors with gay activists and agents of Colombian drug cartels. 2.40, bulldoze all houses of worship. 3 p.m., secure control of the Internet. 3.30 p.m., steam bath to prevent facial wrinkles from the accumulated stress of World Conquest. 4 p.m., cocktails. 5 p.m., chat with friends regarding subverting all mass media. 6 p.m., light dinner, bisque and chardonnay. 8 p.m., attend show at theater. 11 p.m., bed. There you have it. The homosexual agenda. Now, somewhere along the way, we had a list of great hoaxes. We're kind of fans of hoaxes. We mentioned in last week's program the obituary of one of the great hoaxers of modern uh, political science, Dick Tuck. But somewhere in this list of, I guess it was 100 great hoaxes in history, we were particularly fond of number 28, which was known as Operation Parallax. Here's the story. In 1979, London's Capital Radio announced that Operation Parallax would soon go into effect. This was a government plan to resynchronize synchronize the British calendar with the rest of the world. It was explained that ever since 1945, Britain had gradually become 48 hours ahead of all other countries because of the constant switching back and forth from British summertime. And to remedy the situation, the British government had decided to cancel both April 5th and April 12th that year. Capital Radio received numerous calls as a result of this announcement. One employer wanted to know if she had to pay her employees for the missing days. Another woman was curious about what would happen to her birthday, which fell on one of the canceled days. And we do want to stress that we're referring in this case to London's Capital Radio, and in fact not Sacramento's Capital Public Radio. To our knowledge, the only thing that Capital Public Radio has canceled has been the entertainment value of the Insight program. And by the way, I have nothing, well almost nothing, but good memories of my years spent over there assisting the production of that very same program back when it was hosted by Jeffrey Callison. Jeffrey Callison, it should be noted, was, in fact, a competent program host. And you know, we need to bring Jeffrey back on this program. He disappeared somewhere into the, uh, the California Department of Corrections where he is a, a spokesperson. But I, I can't say that I've heard a lot of spokespersoning in the last few years. We, we need to check up on Jeffrey. I am, for the record, grateful for the opportunity to have worked with Mr. Callison for many years. All right, here's an item we, we used on reality radio which was the precursor to Radio Parallax, which aired on Sacramento Access in the years 2000 and 2001, before we found our home at KDVS in 2002. You know, another guy we, we owe a debt of gratitude to is Shane Carpenter, who helped train a lot of people. Ourselves, Mr. Muriel and I, and, and Jeffrey Callison, actually. We haven't talked to Shane in quite a while. We should, we should put a phone call through. At any rate, back in the days when we were on what was called Reality Radio, we found this item... Irresistible, and for the record, it dates from a 1996 book by John Kohut and Roland Sweet, titled "Dumb, Dumber, Dumbest." The story is as follows: Missouri Assistant Attorney General Eric Veith got a court order to bar the International Commission for Schools from issuing any future college accreditations in the same state after it granted one to a fictitious school created by the Attorney General's office. Yes, apparently Mr. Veith, the assistant AG, had asked the commission, this is the commission for schools, to accredit Eastern Missouri Business College. A made-up school was described as granting doctorates through the mails in fields such as marine biology, genetic engineering, and aerospace science. The college faculty included Arnold Ziffel, which was, in fact, the name of the pig on the old Green Acres television program. Also, Edward J. Haskell, perhaps better known to you as Eddie Haskell from Leave It to Beaver. And our personal favorites, M. Howard, Jerome Howard, and Lawrence Feynman, more familiarly referred to as the Three Stooges. Yes, evidently the faculty of the Eastern Missouri Business College failed to... (laughs) failed to arouse suspicion and neither did its college seal which in latin read solo pro avibus est educatio and another college seal which read latracina et raptus these translate and of course I'm, i'm i'm don't pretend to be an expert in latin but these translate roughly as education is for the birds as well as everything from petty theft to highway robbery Speaking in defense of the Commission for Schools, the president, George Reuter Jr., responded by pointing out that the Attorney General made a big deal out of the fact that I didn't know who the Three Stooges were. Well, we've been to about two movies in the last five years, and we don't know Latin. All right, still pulling out of our comedy. Here's a, something <laughs> something that, uh, well, I'm not sure what the source was on this. But here is the expressed sentiment, which is that some people are like slinkies. Not really good for anything. But you still can't help but smile when you see one tumble down the stairs. All right, continuing on in our comedy vein, here's an old item we had here. <laughs> it, was, it was from Pamela Stevenson's book, Um, She is, I believe, the wife of comedian Billy Connolly and quite a fine comedian in her own right. For me, the high-water mark of her book was a section titled Good Words to Use When Writing References. (laughs) In fact, there there was about 20 of them, and there's 10 I particularly liked among the good words to use when writing references, such as, number one, work shy. Number two, militant. Number three, a perennial favorite, kleptomaniac. Number four, registered addict. That's more for the UK. Number five, you have to like, incapable. Number six, to blame. My personal favorite, number seven, ringleader. Number nine, police record. And number 10, among good words to use when writing references, industrial spy. We think Pamela Stevens would be pleased to see you use any of those in a letter of recommendation you may write for a prospective employee. And speaking of prospective employees, let's do a half dozen excerpts from real resumes and cover letters. Now we can't vouch for these, but we suspect they probably are real letters and cover, real resumes and cover letters. Here's one you probably don't want to start out with. Note Please don't misconstrue my 14 jobs as job hopping. I have never quit a job. Here's one. Let's meet so you can ooh and ah over my experience. Probably not a good tack. Another one I would call ill-advised. You will want me to be head honcho in no time. Here's one that could have used spell check. Received a plague for salesperson of the year. Pretty sure they meant plaque. Here's a sidelight on that probably could have been left off. Personal interests? Donating blood. 14 gallons so far. And finally, the company made me a scapegoat, just like my three previous employers. And on the flip side of that, we have quotes from actual performance evaluations. Again, Radio Parallax cannot vouch for these, but we hope they're real. We've also seen these on the web as as purportedly evaluations from the military records of soldiers. His men would follow him anywhere, but only out of morbid curiosity. This one's not so good. Works well when under constant supervision and when cornered like a rat in a trap. Also, he sets low personal standards and then consistently fails to achieve them. And a couple of opinions It seemed like they're editorializing to me, but fair enough. The first one is, this employee is depriving a village somewhere of an idiot. As well as, this employee should go far. And the sooner he starts, the better. Two items left, one old and one new. The old one comes from one of our, our favorite blogger, without a doubt, Mark Evanier. Blog News From Me is, <laughs> is quoted from frequently in this program, with attribution, of course. He evidently had a blog previous to News From Me called Point of View, from which this anecdote comes. As the main force behind the Garfield program, Mark Evanier sometimes gets to hire voice talent. And one person he always wanted to hire was the legendary ventriloquist Paul Winchell. If you're of a certain age, you remember Paul Winchell from the 1960s, perhaps even the 1950s, I don't know. He was to that era what Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy were to, uh, well, a few decades before him. Noted, noted Mark Evanier, Jerry Mahoney was the star dummy or ventriloquist figure of TV's supreme ventriloquist Paul Winchell. He notes that Edgar Bergen and his dummy figure, Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurr ruled the radio airwaves, and when TV arrived, Winchell seemed to be the man. Working with Jerry, another character called Knucklehead Smith, Paul became one of the first genuine TV stars. There's a great story about how he almost didn't make it, however. Evan Yer notes that a lot of folks believe wrongly that the voice of ventriloquist does for his figure is somehow altered to a unique pitch or frequency. It's not. It's just a normal, funny voice that some person performs without moving his lips. That and good acting and misdirection make it appear to be coming from the little wooden guy. When TV was just beginning, Paul Winchell was asked to make his first appearance and they brought him in to do a test. Throughout the test, the director kept telling him, we can't hear Jerry. Paul could be heard when he spoke as Paul, but the throne voice was not being picked up. He raised the volume as much as humanly possible, but there was no luck. The consensus was that for some unknown technical reason there was something about a ventriloquist voice that did not register on TV microphones. Word of this spread through the business, and Paul, of course, was depressed that his skill, his ventriloquism, would not be a part of the new television medium. His agent finally got another producer to give it a try. Another test was arranged, and Paul went in. Unfortunately, it went just like the first test. Paul's voice could be heard when he talked as himself, but when he did Jerry's voice, the boom microphone would not pick it up. They were about to declare it a disaster when Paul happened to glance up and noticed the man who operated the boom mic was moving it back and forth, the way he would do if two performers were talking on stage, pointing it toward whoever was speaking. He asked the man... Where are you pointing the boom when Jerry's talking? The man shrugged. Over Jerry's head, of course. Paul patiently told him, Keep the mic on me at all times. The man did, they tried it again, and Jerry Mahoney was heard loud and clear and forever after. And I'm certainly glad for that. As a kid, I loved Paul Winchell, Jerry Mahoney, and Knucklehead Smith. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett.